is yours. What are we doing here? What are we doing here? It's Red Fence! Red Fence. Do your homework! Hi, George. Hi, Acton. We switched places on the sofa. <laughs> we did. I'm, I'm still trying to get situated. I'm, I'm feeling more <laughs> religious already. Oh, really? <laughs> Excellent. Well, what are we talking about today? <laughs> We're talking about religious feelings. So you're it was all planned. Some, you're having some religious feelings, huh? I'm having some religious feelings, <laughs> but you know, what is a religious feeling? What is a non-religious feeling? Mm. Those are good questions. Because uh, I noticed that, you know, when we describe ourselves for the pod, you know, you're a Christian and I'm secular. I'm mm. secular Jewish, which is its own oxy, little oxymoron, maybe. Yeah. Sort of. Not really. <laughs> I mean, is that true that people think of, I mean, I think of... Judaism as a religion and a culture, mm-hmm. so you can be a secular Jew. But like, do you do you think people have like I'm a secular? People walk around saying I'm a secular Christian. That doesn't really happen. I've, ne- I've never heard that. I mean, maybe someone might use that as like a Christian might use that as a pejorative of someone else yes. that they like don't think is legit. But... Or or you could describe everyone in in Judea the Judeo Christian West as secular Christians in the sense that they're Christian whether that's their culture or whether right. they worship or not right or believe or not usually get called like a nominal christian or post-christian or something like that like living on the fumes of something without subscribing anymore but yeah i I never hear the term like secular christian and i think we use that word and we think we know what it means but it might not mean what we think it means necessarily Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh this philosopher named charles taylor wrote a whole book about it a big book Mm-hmm. Which I read because I like to read big books. <laughs> Not like I remember it. I mean, in one eye, out the other. Part of what he, he's doing in that book is called A Secular Age. And the intro gets right to it. And he says, I want to, he wants to talk about a third sense of what it might mean to be secular. And so the first sort of family of candidates for what that word means is secular in the sense of separation of church and state, meaning when you encounter the outside world of political institutions or government institutions, you don't encounter God. It's separate. Religion and state are separate. And this is easy for Americans to understand because we are one of the earliest countries to have that. I think people mistake the origin of that as being people didn't want to be religious, where that could not be further from the truth. It was people wanted to be religious and didn't want their government being run by religious people of a religion that they weren't. Right. They didn't want to be persecuted. They didn't want other Christians telling them how to be Christian. Exactly. It was, a, it was, the call was coming from inside, inside the, the house. house. Yes. <laughs> the second candidate is this idea that secular Christian doesn't make any sense, right? The falling off of religious belief. So no longer believing God or going to church. So Christian, as you were saying, means, like is taken to always mean observantly religious, religiously observant. Observantly mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> religious. But Taylor wants to explore a third sense of what this term might mean. And so I'm going to read a bit of what he says about this. So what I want to do is examine our society as secular in this third sense, which I could perhaps encapsulate in this way. The change I want to define and trace is one which takes us from a society in which it was virtually impossible not to believe in God to one in which faith, even for the staunchest believer, is one human possibility among others. Secularity in this sense is a matter of the whole context of understanding in which our moral, spiritual, or religious experience and search takes place. An age or society would then be secular or not in virtue of the conditions of experience 
and of search for the spiritual. He's getting at this meaning, which is like, what are the conditions to belief? You know, the greatest change from 1500 to 2000. It's too simple to think that people just lost their faith. The point was, in 1500, it wasn't conceivable to even think of faith as something you could lose. Right. It's So it's the precondition yeah. that he's arguing, that he's investigating. And that idea, when I first read it, I was like, holy cow. It was like, right. head exploding emoji. And so what that means is that even I, as a religious believer, the nature of my belief is different than how it would have been 500 years ago. Yes. I can be a Catholic now, but I cannot, nobody can be the kind of Catholic that a Catholic was in, you know, 1400. Or right. That. That's impossible. Yes. Not because of anything within me or within any other person individually. It's because the, the milieu, the context has completely changed. The plausibility structures behind belief have changed. Right. Yeah. And the spoiler mm-hmm. alert for if you don't want to read the book, but it's a great book is that he traces how that possibility of being able to not to believe comes from religious evolution itself. Mm-hmm. Which is like, right. you're you kidding it. me! <laughs> the call is coming from inside them! <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I, I, I like to read this, this other section from Taylor because it captures perfectly what it feels like to be a lifelong religious believer in a secular age. He says... I may find it inconceivable that I would abandon my faith, but there are others, including possibly some very close to me, whose way of living I cannot in all honesty just dismiss as depraved or blind or unworthy, who have no faith, at least not in God or the transcendent. Belief in God is no longer axiomatic. There are alternatives. And this will also likely mean that at least in certain milieu, it may be hard to sustain one's faith. There will be people who feel bound to give it up, even though they mourn its loss. This has been a recognizable experience in our societies, at least since the mid-19th century. There will be many others to whom faith never even seems an eligible possibility. There are certainly millions today of whom this is true. So this idea that faith is now one possibility among others, it's not axiomatic because there are alternatives, it means that I and all believers in anything are faced with a problem or a question that to me feels uncomfortably like consumer choice, like Crest or Colgate. You know, if in, if in medieval Europe, being a Catholic was like breathing the air, right? This invisible, ubiquitous, universal experience hardly worth commenting on. Then being a Catholic today is like the experience of choosing what college you want to attend or what house to buy, or what job offer to accept, what car to purchase, which person among you know, the glut of options on a dating app will you choose to go out with? It, it feels framed as this high stakes consumer choice. And Christians refer to this kind of ugly feeling all the time. Like when they engage, usually with some embarrassment in church shopping. Have you heard that phrase before? Church shopping? Maybe here or there, but <laughs> I mean, not often. It's definitely like a, an embarrassing reality amongst Christians. You know, where, where you know that you want to attend a church, but you're not sure which one. And so you shop around and you visit lots of places. You compare who's got the better sermons, the better music, the better coffee, the friendlier people, like the, the prettier building, who's got the best children's ministry or youth ministry. Um, or the more robust community service programs, or the in the particular dogmatic commitments that matter most to you. Like whatever it is that you, as the consumer of a religious experience, want to have each week. You know, and what kind of people you want to rub shoulders with, right? And when you finally pick one and settle in, you know, you quote-unquote join that community, but not so much as a part of a body or as a parishioner under authority or as a member of a spiritual family, but as a customer of a spiritual service. 
And like, that just feels, it feels gross. I've talked with other friends about that process of like moving to a new city and you're like, okay, I'm here. I've got to pick a church because that I'm, I'm a believer. I want to be part of a body, but the process of choosing one, it, it always feels sort of like capitalistically contaminated. The choice is a problem. It's not a pleasure (laughs) really. And I, I don't know if most Christians consciously notice that kind of spiritual marketplace dynamic, but you know, those who do feel kind of gross about it, you know, I don't know. I don't know how we can avoid participating in it because I think it's a feature of a liberal, pluralistic, secular society to have the options, to have the alternatives. Like, I think that's, like you're saying, that's part of the nature of how American society was founded, was so that we could have these choices. Like, that's that's a feature of it, not a bug. And, you know, and what's more natural than to compare options and choose what appears to be the best fit based on personal preference? And if you don't find your perfect fit, why not just sleep in on Sunday morning, you know? So I think we engage in the crafty consumer behavior all the time in a lot of different areas. And it's hard to stop doing it, even if that attitude is bad for community formation. My husband has long observed that Protestant denominations function kind of like franchises, like saying, you know, do you want to go to a Presbyterian church or to a Baptist church? It's a bit like, you know, McDonald's or Burger King or Chick-fil-A. Like, what flavor (laughs) are you looking for, right? And, but that also means that people who aren't Christians are kind of in the same category as people who aren't vegans or aren't CrossFit junkies or aren't Democrats. It's just a whatever floats your boat, you know? And that kind of casual consumerist mindset, I, I think it's fundamentally antithetical to the kind of thing that Catholicism is, the more I try to understand it. Like if you draw a box around it and contextualize it and then you can set it aside or set it next to other things as if it were just another choice, then... I think you're misframing what it is and you're misunderstanding what it is and what its claim on you is. And I'm inclined to think that anytime you box or contextualize or diminish the sacred to put it on a level playing field with other choices, then I don't think you're really engaging with it anymore. I think you're playing with a domesticated caricature of the real thing. I think Mm. you're playing church. And I understand the motivation for creating a public realm in which people can play church. It's so they don't kill each other in wars of religion. <laughs> like, I get the reason, and that makes sense. But removing the stakes from what the sacred is also removes the gravity and the stakes of the community that's formed by and around the sacred. So I can't help but feel like religious freedom and religious choice are synonyms with modern secularism, which is synonymous with communal fragility and disintegration. And I'm open to being wrong about that, but that's that's my initial intuition, you know, subject to revision and conversation. So you know, that doesn't mean that I think we have to return to the Middle Ages, but it does mean that individual freedom and pluralism have a trade-off. And one of those trade-offs is the loss of community because preference-driven product and service fan clubs are not communities. That's interesting to hear you, like, be kind of hard on it because I think <laughs> that, like, I sort of feel like there's two things about community. It has to be voluntary. There has to be genuine joy there. And I think that human communities are naturally self-sorting. I remember I was telling yeah. you, how, like, uh, watching uh, Peter Santanello's videos about how he discovers how these all these gradations of Amish to Mennonites and how, like, yes. there's just, like, it is like they self-sort. And I don't necessarily, I don't see that choice as a, as a church shop, I see that as some people just don't think that it makes sense for not to have electricity, and some people think that it's okay to drive, and they, you need those, you need those agreements. 
to form the community, but you can't expect that above a certain number of people are going to agree on that because different. it really is different strokes for different folks. So the most important thing isn't what you agree on, it's that you agree. And so the series of... Okay. So you start off with X or Y church and certain you grow to a certain point and it turns out that half of you feel this way about something and half of you feel the other way. So then the totally natural human thing to do is like, we're going to do this over here and we're not going to bother you and you go right along doing that over there and we're all happier for it and we can all get along because we still share a lot in common. Uh, maybe not everything, but we can we can, we can can have these... <laughs> enclaves that we all really agree on what the what binds our community and then we can have these permeable borders where we're allowed to touch each other and overlap in ways that are you know mutually beneficial and civil and peaceful and great um yeah i mean yeah i see that at work definitely in in amongst christian denominations i mean that was certainly what i was exposed to growing up I was a part of this like traveling youth group, like musical youth group that like did plays in different churches. And like every night we were performing at a different church that was a different denomination and it was totally not a big deal. Right. It, it like it, but, and so it's not a big deal in the sense it didn't, it wasn't a dividing point. It didn't matter. It's like, so, oh, we're all Christians. It's fine. Right. And why is, and what does that mean when you say we're all Christians? Cause this is gets to the heart of it. Right. Cause it means that I, I would assume it means you all believe Jesus died for your sins. Right. The it's, list of what does it mean to be a Christian was extremely small. It would be just, yeah, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Do you believe Jesus died for your sins? And that's it's kind of it. Like anything else added on to that would be seen to be kind of threatening the the potential unity across boundary lines and right. differences. But I would argue that you kind of only need one thing. I mean, like... The, the mo- some of what, like, the most important prayer considered by many Jews is the Shema. And it just means, mm-hmm. hear, O Israel, you know, the... Am I going to get this wrong? <laughs> 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 like, you know, there's... It's basically, there's one God. God's the creator of the universe, and he's, and he's, he's it's one. It's, it's one. There's one God. And that obviously was formulated in the context in a time where even in the Torah, there's all these there's all this evidence of people doing other gods or associating different gods from different traditions with the the one god. And so, I mean, we don't have the benefit of seeing monotheism theism from the, you know, from the t- from the before times. We don't really get that, you know. So, um I think it's actually really powerful to have just one simple thing in common. Like I would almost argue that that's really all you need and the rest of it really is. You're never going to get people to agree on all the rest because like, I mean, you know, the classic two Jews, three opinions, like all the other things, it's not even worth trying. But the power of that one idea, whether it's that there's one God, whether it's that Jesus died for your sins, whatever that one idea is, is the catalyst for everything else. And... And of course, it doesn't look like it doesn't look like everyone like you know how in in Italian the word Cristiano is just Christian. It's just a um, it's just another word for human being because it just assumes that everybody in like <laughs> I like, didn't know that yeah like when you you can use it to mean like oh I saw somebody there you can say you know Cristiano Cristiano like just because everybody who's alive in that community like if they're not a foreigner mm-hmm. is a Christian that's just that's human everybody was born into the same. So, yeah, you get that. Um, so I would say that that sort of, like, oneness assumption, that wholeness assumption is 
is no longer present. And I guess that is like the difference, right? Because we preserve that one, that big idea as an as an idea, as a belief. We don't preserve it as a you're all this way. So we don't preserve it as a practice, right? And we don't preserve presu- we don't presume it presume it as an assumption about who someone is. Like what you're saying mm-hmm. about consumer choice. That means it's like consumer choice is another way of saying it's a choice that reflects on me as a person, as an individual, my identity. Identity. That still kind of makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> But it would be interesting to separate that discomfort, which I think I'm going to talk a lot about in a second, yeah. from the idea of the way um, the concerns of, like, there's, there seems to be several levels, some of which may be more disconcerting than the other. Like, the idea that it's faith changes when you live in an environment where faith is optional. Concern number one. That's what yes. Taylor's book is about. Uh, concern number two, there's a lot of non-religious motivations for why we pick the community to which we belong. Like, good coffee, pretty building. I mean, for me, I'd be like, you know, I was joking with my husband. It's like, well, it's convenience you want. We have to be Catholic, because that's right down the street, right? Um, Like, all kinds of real-world practical things like that, which is embarrassing to admit, but even these things, these things influence us. They really motivate people, yeah. They really, they really, they they can make a difference. And then that other concern of, like, what does it mean, like, this? what you're trying to get at when you were saying um, that those choices diminish the sacred. They almost sort of, like, defeat the purpose of yeah. what religion is supposed to be, which is this overarching thing that there is no put it in a box, put it on Sunday, right. pick the best coffee. That makes it too small, because then you can kind of grab it or toss it away or select it or deselect it. It's like, my, my understanding of what the transcendent or the sacred is, is you cannot get your hands all the way around it to pick it up and set it aside. If you do that, then that's not it. Just like, I don't know if it was Augustine or who said it, but like, if you can, if you've defined it, whatever it is, then it's not God. God is not definable, right, in, in that ultimate sense. And it, it just, it's a, it's a diminishment. And I get the reason for it, you know? We don't all want to be killing each other in wars of religion, but then I just feel like we're not really engaging with with the transcendent anymore. So, th- so then it's like, okay, the stakes are lowered so we don't hurt each other, but then well, the stakes are lowered so that it becomes a little bit more of the, well, then who cares? Why, why bother? If it doesn't matter, why bother? I mean, I, I think, I'm not sure that religious people in the 1500s categorized it as something optional but I'm not sure that they felt any better about it I think it was just like you know I I think it was just something it was it was necessary to feel that way like it was just obvious that you needed to behave this way Mm -hmm. and of course the movement against that sort of slowly secularized Christianity in that way came out of all these changes that perhaps made it possible to realize that maybe it wasn't that necessary in the way that they had originally thought it was. Like, their relationship with reality, with, you know, health and wars, and the relationship with their government, the relationship with, like, rulers and industrialization, like, all of those things just changed the way they thought about the world. Yes. So, yeah, it's it's easy to romanticize that period, but I think it was more like, it was just, they were what they were living was the kind of contingency. And we don't live in the same kind of... We're not contingent in that way on everybody being, you know, having the priests 
bless this or that. Or, like, we're just not contingent on that because we just have a different society. We do. Yeah. So I think what I'm trying to say is, like, yes, was there... I agree. I think there was probably a bigger, wider sense, a more obvious sense of the sacred. But at the same time, I don't think people took a lot of... Um, they didn't. People didn't luxuriate in that. It was like... Well, it would be scary. It was like, like oh, shit. Oh, like, I just committed a mortal sin. Oh, no. You know, yeah, like, I mean... Yeah, there's teeth to it. Yeah, yeah and, there, and, and the teeth was like, you know, in a way, the Catholic Church was a victim of its own success in many ways, in yeah. terms of, like, what brought about the Reformation. Because, I mean, yeah. you know, it was so important. If you if you'd really convinced a lot of people that, you know, you could say... You could reduce someone's time in purgatory by paying for masses. Like, <laughs> if you could really do that... Then, like, there's, yeah. con- like, you, you take all that momentum. Yeah. And then that's going to have consequences. Yes. So. Yeah. So powerful things have powerful effects. Yes. And, and so then you end up with situations that you couldn't possibly have anticipated yeah. as a result of those powerful effects. So yeah. in some way, we just don't live at the mercy of, our powerful effects are different. In fact, it's, you know, the, and we don't have a sense of. I mean, I keep thinking about, like, Ted Kaczynski and his, you know, warning that, you know, if you, human beings do best when they can do, when they can, when something is, it's like the Goldilocks thing, where they, it's just, it's not too easy, not too hard, and it's not too, um, and it's not too far away from them. In the mm-hmm. sense that, like, we can't, um, we can't just sit around and pray for peace, because we can't, or we can't just sit around and, like, hope the, like, the cl- climate, we can't work towards... Individuals can't fix climate change or fix global conflict. Yeah. And so they don't do well when those are their goals. Yeah. But similarly, they don't, all, they don't really do well when, like, it's just too easy to sit at a screen and press buttons either. That's not satisfying. Uh-huh. So you have, to have, you have to find that middle ground. And I think yeah. where things are just hard enough. And I think that religion probably sat in that spot along with all those other mm. things that, like, you know... Keeping, you know, keeping your children safe from wild animals or, you know, um, making the, you know, making productive use of farmland and making sure that people were fed and having quarantines when there were diseases and caring for the sick. And Mm -hmm. I think religion just felt like one of those psychotechnologies that was, it it made sense within its context in such a way that it didn't feel like too easy. So it's like, why bother? Let's sleep in. Uh-huh. Or too hard. I can't do anything to affect this. It felt immediate. It's the immediacy yeah. of it. And I think that mm-hmm. to recreate that immediacy, you need a good you need goodwill. So you're gonna have to inevitably sort out all these people and all their different churches or synagogues or whatever because you can't fake that. Right. You can't fake that good feeling. Nobody's gonna wanna do something, nobody's gonna wanna serve without a genuine You need real trust. You need real trust and you need, uh, it's like, what is that word for it? You need like, it's trust, but it's also like, uh, you, you actually need to believe the thing you're doing is real, is significant. Like if you're going to be like churches and communities like that are really what I would call, I came up with this on this yoga retreat I was at. I thought about this term like mindful obligation. Mm. You have to, we're all obligated to do things, but a lot of the things we, we obligate ourselves are not mindful in the sense that they're not we don't direct our minds there for the benefit of our um, of something that we consider you know in some way 
transcendent and not just convenient. The whole is greater than the sum of its like parts. It, like, would grace be an okay word for that? It's Excellent sort of above word. Above and beyond. Excellent like, word. It's like a thing that's produced when you're doing a thing that's good in itself, but it's producing something extra. It's like a yeah. surplus. Yes. A spiritual surplus. Grace has okay. spiritual surplus. I love yeah. it. <laughs> in order for that to form, you need, like, genuine feeling, because you can't just, like... That's why, like, when you do, like, team-building events at work, you're trying to, like, cultivate that in a space where that doesn't ever have to it happen. It feels forced and awkward. It feels forced and awkward, but also, like, maybe you can generate some of that, but, like, work is one of those things where you're obligated to do it, but you're not obligated to it in the same way you would be towards the kind of other thing, like your community or your, like, or worship. It's a, it, there's diff, They're different because, mm-hmm. I mean, there's a bit of a sort of, like, commandment structure to it, right? Because you have to believe that it's not just a good idea because it because it's your idea. It's a good idea because somebody said to do it. Like somebody That's a long right. time ago or somebody like, I mean, however you conceive of God, That's but right. like some tradition. Yes. It's beyond personal preference. Right. 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 The sense that your own desire for it or intuition towards it is shaped by something bigger than you. And you're not just like, I just chose this because. Right. Yeah. So there, yeah, you can say there's a lot of, I mean, I can, I'm going to talk about how, um, you know, community as a buzzword is also a big thing in the secular world. Mm-hmm. But I think that, and, may, and even if it's to the extent that it exists in religious communities, I think the fundamental difference is on this idea of its belief that motivates you and even commandment that motivates you. It's, this is what you... As a person of the world who has this belief in something either historical or transhistorical or spiritual or religious, the transcendent God, whatever word we're going to try to pin to this, these things, these big ideas, those mindful obligations and the communities that are created by those shared mindful obligations just are just way different. Like, so even like selecting the best coffee and selecting like which dogma is right for you, which level of observance is right for you. Mm-hmm. I think those are inevitable, but I think that those are also secondary because what really, like you need both. You need both the sort of commandment orientation of why we're doing this. Yes. And then you also need to agree on like what we do here in this same place. Right. Same words, same people. Because you need a script for how we're going to, be able to act in concert right. over things that matter. Right. So you, you have to be in agreement on all And also details. it's like how I'm always joking, like I like Bikram because you go there and you never learn anything new because the poses are always the same. Uh-huh. I feel like religion has to be the same way because you yes. can't form a community, commit yeah. time resources, money resources, get a building, get a per- you know, get a higher staff. You can't have that and then be like, and today I decided that we're going to now do this. I mean, that's what right. cults do. right. Right, yeah, there. Ev- yeah, every religion has to have some kind of liturgy to it, where these are stability. Things. I mean, yeah. like you have to yeah. decide we're doing this and not this, right. and you can reliably show up next week, and we're not changing our mind. Uh huh. I mean, and this is how like people. This is how churches break up, and this is that whole movement about like there's a lot of that going on. Yeah, I think from what oh, yeah. I gather from my various you know eyes and ears, I feel like that's a thing. People move. And part of that is politics coming in and influencing yes. church belief. and Yeah, and then churches that used to be in step with one another, yeah, are breaking along 
conservative liberal lines because people can't agree, well, how are, what kind of sermons are we supposed to have and how are, what kind of ministries are we going to have to help right. who? And right. yeah, all that right. stuff. And the, even the language that's used is like what language is okay to, to be used in prayers or right. other things. Right. Yep. Yeah. The politics are coming in and making it hard for formerly united believers to stay united. And so I think that's, I mean, that to me seems more sad than choosing, finding the best coffee. The fact that like, even these religious communities that have these sort of basic shared thou shalt Mm -hmm. do these things for each other and with each other, that is not enough to prevent. It's not just like, let's find our own happy medium of different community, different strokes for different folks. It's like actual coming to schism over these, what are, you know, what, should be you'd hope could be issues that could be just put to one side right yeah there is a big difference between self-sorting and schism i mean one is kind of like dating like finding who you want to be with and the other is like a divorce we're like oh you were together and now you know that they feel quite different right and you would never go into it like in in a way choosing a church could be seen like choosing a marriage a marriage is this you know, a marriage can be looked at as this very sacred endeavor, but, like, nobody would say that you can make a sacred marriage out of two people who are not compatible. Right. I mean, right. people, like, generally mm-hmm. traditions that want people to yeah. marry each other and be successful yeah. are open to a certain amount of, yeah. um, say, you know, reality-based information about that. Right. Yeah. And there is a big difference between Christians who sort of, you know, because they've moved, say they're in a new city, mm-hmm. and now they have to kind of church shop to find their new home that... They say, this is it, unless we have to move again. Like, right. we're here, right? It's very different from, oh, yeah, we went to this place, and now we're kind of a little disaffected because they started doing the blah, blah, blah different. Uh-huh. I don't like the new style of music. I don't like the new pastor. And you kind of get disaffected, and you're like, I'm going to go start shopping around somewhere else. Is very different. Yeah. It's hard because we want the thing. We want mm-hmm. the thing, but we also want the thing to feel good. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and we know that the thing feeling good is what makes us better at the thing. Say, it makes us more. more, like, if we, so belief is necessary but not sufficient. Belief can motivate you to want to join and serve, but the service itself has to feel, you have to feel like you genuinely like these people and you genuinely, yeah. like, connect with these people that you're serving. You have to have, mm-hmm. you can't just, it, it's not arbitrary, like in the same way the belief isn't arbitrary neither is the the neither can the feelings be arbitrarily manufactured so community this word big buzzword i'm this word is used a lot in things that are explicitly about services about talk about shopping i mean like what kind of fitness do you want to do right i've been listening to this podcast called ask a jew it's between this uh, secular Israeli woman who actually lives in the United States now, but her whole family still lives in Israel. And this woman, this other woman named Hylea, who is Hasidic and was raised in Southern California, but in like in a very observant Orthodox mm-hmm. community. And she was joking how she's telling, um, she's telling Yael how she went, she's going, been going to spin class because I mean it is LA, right? Yeah. And she was, <laughs> she's telling a funny story. She was quoting the instructor saying. You only have this moment right now. You choose to be here today, and we are a community. And she makes this incredibly funny offside comment. She says, if this is my community, I'm sorry. Like, that is pathetic, because I don't talk to any of those people, and I don't rely on any of those people. And I want to tell everyone in that room, I hope you have other communities besides this class, because no one here cares about each other. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that is interesting because, I mean, obviously it's true. But what's even more interesting about it is to observe that if that's so true, A, do people know that? And B, why are we throwing around this word? Why are we using the C word? Why are we using the community word in this? So so for you to talk about shirt shopping, I feel like I feel like people have to shirt shop because if people don't find the right place, it won't work. Yeah. But yeah. this is like another level of kind of blinded mm. bullshit about... Interesting. Like, yeah. I mean, your spin class as a community, that's obvious bullshit. And why do people... And this is being used to make people feel good about their consumer choice. That, right. I was going to say, it is connected to consumer choice. Yes. It's like, oh, you're getting this sort of spiritual-ish connecting thing going on, so keep paying your membership and keep coming to class. Right. Right. You know, it. yeah, that's pretty gross. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, and, and so the two of the two women, like, riff on this. It's like, uh, yeah... Like, uh, yeah, I was like, yeah, so uh, after this class, can anyone take me to the airport? Like, just joking about how, yeah. like, what real communities do <laughs> for each right. other. And, you know, right. like, community is not something you buy. And I would argue that increasingly what's happened to me over the last few years is I realized that it shouldn't be formed around your identity. It, it has a geographical implication for me. Uh-huh. And, of course, the Internet wants to make that mm. all weirded out. But for me, I can't get past that. And so... I think this whole sort of journey of mine, uh-oh, I used the J word, this whole <laughs> period of thought in which I am interrogating this idea of community and what it means and what it means to make one mm. started when I was working remotely and the we had a women's channel on our company Slack, but the younger generation thought that that meant that it was just for people who were oppressed. It wasn't for women. It wasn't a positive definition of women. It was just all the people who were, like, on the oppression hierarchy lower than the straight white guys. So it wasn't just women on there? Or, like, like it, it was just women, but they were not, like, The idea was that some people, were the, some were of the, the younger generation saw it as, like, not about being female, but being oppressed. I'm curious, how did that come out in the kinds of things they would... Right, or like, how how did you know what were the signs? Because we like, sort of really? had this conversation about it. Because the, I think the channel was listening called like Ladies or something, and somebody wanted to change it to be more inclusive. And it's like uh, inclusive of what? And that was when we had this discussion where it was revealed was to me for? that you know a certain younger ge- generation of feminists think that it's not about your femaleness; it's about your level of oppression. Which, as a category, again, so like a community based on privilege. I mean, this is the same kind of thing that's going on in churches that are dividing mm-hmm. over whether it's gay marriage or um, ordination of women. Like, all these, yeah. like, what we could loosely call, even though we don't like this term, gender and sexuality issues. Yeah. These are everywhere. They're, they're, they're coming in, they're sort of influencing the way that all kinds of communities, whether they're religious communities or non-religious communities, are shaped and formed and talk about themselves. And I was in a women's group, and... And one of the, the rules of the women's group was that you couldn't talk about, like, you couldn't engage in any discourse that could be construed as, how shall I say this? I guess the term to use is the term they use, like, hateful or discriminatory. And that meant, like, you couldn't talk about women being told female females. What's that? You couldn't talk you about couldn't women talk about females? women. You couldn't use that kind of language. Even so, though this was a women's group for women, you couldn't talk about because it would be divisive or hateful or to say like you know I don't believe a man can ever be a woman no matter what. 
Like, you couldn't... We weren't allowed to... Like, I wasn't around to raise that in the group. Wow. So, that was weird. I, yeah, it's very weird. Although, I have to say, though, I actually learned something very valuable from that experience, mm. which was that if you... Because I would come out as a, a gender defender. I'm not using the term gender critical anymore. I think we okay. should just call ourselves gender, gender defenders. defenders. <laughs> I would come out as a gender defender to individual women in this group. And you could just agree. I mean, uh, obviously there were people who agreed with me. And then there were people who were like, but, you know, but, you know, this trans woman in my church is so nice. You know, that kind of yeah. thing. And you agree to disagree. And on an and individual like, level yes. with those women, it was fine. It's fine. They didn't see you as this hateful, bigoted, exactly. evil person. Exactly. We okay. can be loyal and loving to one another yeah. without always agreeing. Yeah. On a one-to-one level, that right. worked. But that couldn't scale out to the group? I think there's just fear about... I think it's just complicated. I think it's just hard because you don't want to... There's just a lot of anxiety about these kind of issues. Because mm-hmm. it's one of those things that, like, you know, the future's already here. It's just not evenly distributed. A lot of people's lives have been disproportionately screwed up by this issue. Yes. Whether it's some like whether it's their own daughter being caught in this contagion, mm-hmm. or whether it's getting crap at work, maybe being fired or demoted or you know something. Mm-hmm. But like ninety nine point nine percent of people will probably have no contact with it ever. It'll it'll literally will have come and gone. It'll be like, oh, was that a thing? Were they putting kids? Were they giving minors mastectomies? Like, was that happening? I didn't. I didn't know. I missed that. I missed yeah. that. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. I think it's just hard that way because I, I think that it's really unevenly distributed, mm-hmm. and so I think I understand the the caution on the part of people to be like, if it's not really here, I don't want to put. It, I don't want to bring it here. Okay. But another thing I learned in this group, which was about, it was about. It was, this, this women's group was about, like, getting in touch with feminine spirituality. I don't want to be too specific because I don't want to really, I don't want people to be able to Google this. But the other important thing that I really learned during this year-long thing was that there is no spiritual or religious practice that is extra-cultural. Ah. Everything meaningful is fully culturally contingent and contextualized. Yes. So, like, when we were talking about Virgin, the Virgin Mary... Because, you know, there's all these different goddess traditions, right? Okay. Like, that's a Christian one. I'm telling you that. Telling the Catholic <laughs> that. Um, and people were a lot more uncomfortable with that. Because people tend to have more baggage. Because if oh. they had been, like... They didn't know, like hearing about that? Well, it's just like, that they weren't comfortable relating to it. Because it might have been part of their their, their baggage. Their family okay. or their, you know, yeah. their tradition of origin. Like, they just, like, didn't... Yeah. They couldn't view it neutrally, and that was that's a clue, right? Yes. Because if you're if you are viewing something neutrally, what it really means is you're ignorant of its cultural contingency. Yeah. And so at one point we were doing a unit on the Hindu goddess Lakshmi, who's the god of like fortune and prosperity. Goddess, I should say. Well, I mean, it's complicated in Hinduism, but you get what I mean. So and we get we get these mantras, and I looked this up. I because you know me, it's all about language. So I looked it up, and it's like part of it is like, may you have lots of dung on your fields. That's one of the yeah. Things that's you in were the chanting. mantra. That's in the ma- <laughs> that's in the full mantra because it's like yeah, hello. At the time Italy. they were like that's how they f- ate. Right. Like, I mean, props to them, you know, and like you know, they were burning manure in like southern Italy because they didn't. They were ignorant. I mean, at least at least in India, they knew what the purpose of manure was. Like, go. So, in your women's group, were they like chanting this? Like, I mean, it was but not knowing the full thing of it, or it's just like the 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 lesson was always was never about 
being a Hindu or appreciating the cultural context of this thing. It was always yeah. about like invite prosperity into your world. Like it was, it's this, it's the sort of like yeah. high level, like what we could call the woo level, if we right. want to be a little bit disparaging of it. To kind of like decontextualize it from the culture it's embedded in. Right. Like extract your special extract from it. Extract. Enjoy it, but you're not taking the whole. Well, it feels. Thing. It, it feels there's you don't have any resistance to it because you have no mm-hmm. cultural context with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you can it, it becomes like AA. You literally can take what you like and leave the rest, which is a necessary thing in certain practices that are yeah. based on a set where you actually don't share a set of specific values. And even when you do, mm-hmm. there's got to be moments of like in any faith community yes. where someone says something and you're like. Not so much for me. Right. There's got to be go, those little things mm-hmm. around. The, That's right. It's the fringes, right? You got to be like, we're just going to look at that. We're you're never, I mean. Yeah. yeah. You have to. Because you're never going to find even two people who can share identical beliefs. Exactly. I mean, that's just, yeah. that's not realistic. Right. Okay. So if, if, if you can have this, you know, really wonderful relationship with these tidbits of the East and their spirituality, it's probably because you're not from there. Because uh-huh. if it were your culture, just like people had baggage with, you know, with the Christian goddesses, yeah. like, they're going to have, like, yeah. if it was your culture, you would have that same baggage. It's all just relative. So mm-hmm. what I took from that was why go towards a culture with you have, with, with, uh, for which you have no context when you could just be in the culture, you could just explore the one that you have the context. I mean, what's the difference? Right. I mean... The difference is, you know, you might actually have to, like, things get a lot realer when it's your own tradition that you've lived in, whether you've, at arm's length or whether immersed, whether you were Uh deep in it or not, or or Mm -hmm. busy, you know, resisting it. Whichever your attitude is, it's, it's, I began to see that there was no other place to go. Yeah. There was only places to go authentically or inauthentically. Right. And so the more authentic is to be like, well, who am I? Where am I? Like, keep it close to home is the idea. I became very aware of the actual real stakes of disavowing your own tradition. Mm. So. Wow, say more about that. So, so, so I went to this yoga retreat and it was the course that this retreat was a part of is, was open to all. But of course it's 12 women who end up. Showing, like, okay. signing up. And that, to me, is, like, a no-brainer. Yeah. Because it's women who want, who seek, are much more likely to seek community, especially in that modality. Yes. I think it's safe to say that most people who are going to do a, a, a teaching course for yoga are doing it because they want to be part of something. It's not just a tool to take with them. It's also the, oh, God, I'm going to say it again, the journey. <laughs> it's also the community yeah. of the other women that who are going to do it with them. It's... It's fun. I mean, otherwise, I mean, I'm sure it's entirely possible to like do it online. Someone will take your money and play the videos for you, right? But you so it's still the same, right? But so, like, people who just want the piece of paper, they can find a way without yeah. coming into the real world. But so you have these women, and we're all in this place, and the, it's been catered. So there's food, and it was just re- it's just remarkable to see how you can turn a group of women. I mean, some of these women knew each other from before, but like, you can turn a group of women who are not particularly close, into a very cohesive group very fast. Hmm. And that's because women like that. Women <laughs> like that kind of thing. Yeah. We're good at it. Yeah. We need to be good at it because there would be no human civilization without that's it. Right. That's right. 
I mean, if women couldn't come together and take care of the kids and raise and make the food and hello, we're yeah. all descendants of very successful people who did these things. Right. Right. I think that's a really joyful thing. But I also try to think about what kind of community is this and how this is sort of like these kinds of things are these secular kind of communities. This is obviously a little better than spin class because you are actually eating yeah. together, right? Yeah. But it's the same kind of... It's in that wheelhouse, right? Because it's, mm. it's a secular community brought together by the rhetoric of personal journeys. Hmm. Well, now I'm going to start critiquing the J word here. <laughs> and, and what's the function of this is like if you're... So this is purely about your choice, right? It's your, 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 you chose to do this. You're going to get something out of it. What, why are you here? Why is this good for you, right? And it, when you have these individual journeys, and I don't think there's anything wrong with doing any of these things. I think it's all fantastic. It's, this is not coming from a judgmental angle. This is just coming from an observation about what is possible under these conditions. Okay. So if you have these individuals coming together to all get something out of it, um, the language of the group has to be very vague, right? Because, like, you don't actually... No one's inquired whatever, what it is that everybody's, like, values are. You're just sort of... It has to, so it's very vague or... Yes. Or and or, I might say, very technical. Like, very focused on the subject matter that everyone is there to pursue. Because that's the one point of union. That's the one have. point of union, yeah. right. It's like... I mean, a lot of this feels like a big joke on the Unitarians. Like, how people, yeah. like, Unitarians get it from both sides. Yeah. Like, if it's that dilute, why bother? Yes. Like either don't go to church or or go and and you know yes. go and say real things yes. that have real yeah like they're really be particular, focused be yeah. particular right so you so you you can either so that's the trade off right because you and and so it's this language of and because we've talked so much about virtue mm -hmm. and what I began to realize is that you can't talk about virtue if all you're talking about are vague things and personal things mm. because virtue is both specific. And inherently interpersonal. Yes. Yeah. And I realized that I was, like, really turned off suddenly by this, that I, that I didn't want this set, this vocabulary anymore. And I kept imagining the other vocabulary. Oh. And, of course, these two vocabularies, we talked about this a lot. You won't be surprised, listeners. So on the one side, there's the vocabulary of identity, mm -hmm. like... You know, your personal journey being the big, the big you know, the J word under yes, that side yeah. versus virtue. And I realized that all the things that come up in these kinds of, you know, what we could call, what should we call them? Like pseudo-spiritual or like yeah. semi-spiritual, demi-spiritual. I don't know, we're going to get it all weird out. <laughs> demi but like, you know, and I realized that for all these things that people bring on their, again, I'm not... These were all wonderful women. It was yes. a great weekend, and I and I think that it's fantastic. It's just that it was just this sort of inner re realization that that rhetoric had taken me as far as I, I could go with that. Like, I just didn't... I just mm. wasn't in that space where that rhetoric spoke to my needs anymore. Yeah. And so I kept imagining the other rhetoric. So, like, yes. instead of, like, personal growth, you know, and, like... Just that sort of, the identitarian whole thing, like, whereas, like, on the identitarian side, it would be about trauma. The virtue way would be about belongingness. Mm-hmm. You know, instead of worthiness, and it, obviously we want people to, like, cultivate self-worth, that's important, but, like, the vocabulary with which we talk about these things, mm -hmm. if you change the vocabulary, you change the outcome, you change the whole thing, right? So instead of worthiness, we talk about fulfillment. Uh-huh. Instead of happiness, we talk about goodness. Mm-hmm. 
Obviously, we can't do that because that implies, mm. right? Instead yeah. of desire, can we talk about dedication? Mm. Instead of self-care, which is, that is like oh, up man. with the J word. That's the big one. Yes. Right? Instead of self-care and me time, can we talk about integration yeah. and us time? Right. Instead of exploration, right? That's another one. Uh-huh. Exploring personal growth, <laughs> right? Can we talk about worship? Instead oh, of yeah. safety, can we talk about judgment? That's a big one. That's, Ooh, uh, that's, 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 big. that's very profound. Yes. Instead of journey, can we talk about homemaking or mm. community making or nesting or, mm-hmm. you know, like not going somewhere, but yeah, making something where we are together. Mm-hmm. Instead of goals, like personal goals, what are your personal mm-hmm. goals, right? Can we talk about commitment? Mm-hmm. Instead of self-direction, can we talk about inspiration? Instead, and like, wow. this isn't, and then of course, as we've talked about many times, instead of, if this kind of thing is a service, like you're paying someone for there to be a leader and get a thing, yeah. could we talk about doing it without that? Could we talk about it as a care thing where we're just like, we're going to be mindfully obligated to each other. Just, we're going to bring who we are and what we are and what we have, right. and we're going to throw it all together and see what happens. Right. Like stone soup, yes. perhaps. Yes. Yeah. And so I spend this whole weekend thinking about all these things and thinking about the vocabulary and you know, it's a very common thing at the end of a yoga class to put your hands at your heart. Oh, like yeah. they call that prayer position, you know, yep. that's prayer position. Mm-hmm. And like chant something like Aum. Okay. Or like peace, you know, Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. Mm-hmm. I, I'm mean, i not actually sure if that comes from direct, that, that Shanti, Shanti, Shanti comes from a Buddhist tradition or a Hindu tradition or where it meets mm-hmm. the yoga tradition. I honestly don't know, but I've never looked it up. But it's like it began to dawn on me, and a part of this is because I was in the Bay Area for the high holidays with my mother, and it's the first time I'd been there for that whole period of time for a long time. And I just, it began to, it just occurred to me, like, spontaneously, it's like, if we are all clear that yoga is not a religion, then why are we pretending to pray? (laughs) And I was like, and I was like, I would much rather really pray than pretend to pray. And yeah. it's not even, and I say this in the context of, like, not even really knowing what that necessarily means or implies. But certainly it was like, why have personal growth when you can have God? It's like, there's a bigger way to do this. Yes. Like, if you're going <laughs> to go in for a penny, go in for, for a, a pound. pound. <laughs> it's like, you know, like, if you really want to, like, why? I was trying to work out, like, where the pretending and where the real, real is. Like, I think it's people think if they have no faith, they can't pray. So, like, if they don't believe, they can't pray. But it began to occur to me that that's not how prayer is mostly used. Mm-mm. Prayer is obviously not about, like, it's not just about saying the words. It's about the conditions under which the words are said. Yes. And, and I want to make it very clear that the conditions under which the words are said is all about what the retreat was about. Because it's super powerful to meditate in a group of women mm-hmm. who are all meditating. Like, that space effect is undeniable. I, I mean, who knows, like, I, I think that's just a function of being a human being. Yeah. It's like... Do you feel a real resonance with the other women in the room? I, I mean, yeah. it's just, you can't mimic that space. Like, yeah. sitting together, praying together, even though we weren't praying, I was just like, why are we building this instant community that has all these very powerful attributes, and then not doing with it the thing that you can, like, why are we building a car and only driving it in first gear? Right. right. Right? That's what it felt like. Okay. It felt like, wow, we have oh. access to this super powerful space yes. where we all are. Yeah. And we're all feeling. And what, what you need to get that car out of first gear 
is you need a vocabulary of we're at the center of the wheel of if you imagine all these words that I read mm-hmm. are at like spokes and the hub and the hub on the identity side is the self. Yeah. Well, the hub on the other side is something it's not other because that's silly. It's not the anti-self that's the hub of the other words. Right. It's the big thing. It's like source or the universe or God or whatever word you want to put there. That's the word that's there. Right. And yeah. so it is like... It's the ultimate. Why build a car to drive in the first gear of self when you can drive in all the other gears if you get out of first and organize it around something bigger? You got to name that thing, though. You can't, like, not name it. Like, nobody has ever any problem naming the self when they talk about personal growth or your own journey. Nobody has any problem doing that. So it's like... I think part of the reason people do it is because it's safer and you maintain a whole lot more control, you know, of the car when you're in, when self is the hub. You're like, I can opt out of this at any time. This gets too personal. This gets too... You're demanding too much of me. Mm-hmm. You're pressing my buttons. Like, oh, yeah. I'm out. I'm out. You Or you hurt me, so-and-so in the group. I'm out. Like, if you can just opt out, then the stakes aren't big enough. And there's not, like, a claim on you. I think the thing, when, when God or the ultimate concern is at the hub, then, like, yeah, you don't get to opt out. It's and, not opt-outable. It's not, not opt-outable. That... Yeah, that's the sense of it having teeth to it, or there being right. kind of judgment involved in it. Like, there were judgment you said, or that there are stakes. Right. And that's a lot scarier. Right. And the funny thing is, is that even if, the, if in the 1500s people understood that it was not opt-outable, they didn't even perceive the space in which one would opt out. That right. it wouldn't come there's nowhere to go 100 to. years. There's nowhere to, you know, there's yeah. nowhere to see it from. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the funny thing is that, like, we have that space now, but it's still no more opt-outable. I mean, like, even Buddhism is going to tell you that, like, you know, if, like, one of the practices in meditation is to, like, to wait to, to focus, to be the observer of your mind, oh, yeah. is to concentrate on the, because it's too hard to think about everything. You mm-hmm. have to think about, pick a thing, right? Oh, it's easier like to the work breath. With, one is an important number, right? <laughs> so focus on the outflow of your breath. And one of the rationales around that is that, you know, I mean, it's sort of a cliche to think that Buddhists are always thinking, always thinking about death. But, like, one day, your last breath out will be your last breath. And there won't be an end. And there won't be another one to call. Like, mm. so it's a way of, like, it really yeah, does kind yeah. of tailor it right down to the essential. Yeah. So in that way, it's not opt-outable. That's right. In the no sense that, like, death. you can't opt <laughs> out of the conditions under which you are living. Yes. And the conditions are, you know, those are the conditions. Like, mm it's the book that we were reading was called the wisdom of no escape. And it was one of the better books about meditation that I've ever read. And one of the things about it is actually, I think I might've texted this to you is that it has this sort of presumption that, you know, the vast majority of people are coming at meditation or any spiritual practice for that matter. They're just normal, functional, good people. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the reasons why I don't like this language that is so focused on personal growth and trauma and worthiness. And it's like, I'm not saying that those things aren't things we need to grapple with. I know I've grappled with them at various times in my life. But from we, if we wallow in the sort of like suboptimal of which we all may spend part or hopefully not too much of our lives, if we wallow in that level of self-reflection, we actually are less able to harness the sort of, like, above the parapet yep. kind of functionality that most of us enjoy most of the time. Mm-hmm. 
by by just sort of taking for granted that we can come to community as nominally functional good people, then we have some sort of clay to work with. Yeah. And we don't actually need to do do the work or go on the journey or we don't need yeah. to do any of those things. We're, that we're, we're fine. We can then just do the other thing. So there's like this secular version of original sin of like humans are just kind of rotten and so... Except it's like, it's, it's, it's couched in the language of I feel bad or I don't have enough for me or how can we put this? Like in the, in the wisdom of no escape, there's a passage like, you know, my marriage would be perfect if it weren't for my husband. (laughs) And it's like, you know, this story is told as in like, if you find yourself saying, if I meditate, I'll be a better person. It's the same kind of a, it's the same kind of subtle self-aggression as saying if it weren't for my husband I'd have a perfect marriage, mm. which is to say that it misunderstands the relationship between cause and effect. Because hmm. I mean, if you didn't, if it weren't for your husband, you wouldn't be married. So right. it's like it feels obvious and tautological when you put it in those terms, yeah. but when you put it in terms of like, if you put it in terms of something that someone is more likely to think is true, if I meditate, I will be a better person. Mm-hmm. People think, yeah, because I want to. I'm doing this to get that. I'm doing A to get B. And of course, meditation isn't like that. You're not it's supposed not to. It's not instrumental, right? It's tool. it's not a. I mean, it is a tool, but if you view it like that, you're you're not using it. <laughs> you're not Probably. using the tool. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I understand that. That's confusing to me. Because like you, the whole idea of like you know the the principle of uh, practicing meditation is to practice is to learn to use your mind. To practice non-attachment. And that doesn't mean not caring about things. That just means that you and your, you are, the observer is not you. I mean, like, the person who's thinking the thought is not you, because how could that be if you can also observe the person thinking it? So, like, one of the techniques we did, which I I really love, is that, because if you try to meditate, you'll just think. Uh Uh-huh. And that's fine. Uh That's the point. But it's not meditating. (laughs) Well, it is in the sense that you are actually, you are intending to. So what you do when you have a thought... You the best way to discipline maybe the wrong word, but the best way to sort of practice this is to when you have a thought, acknowledge the thought, but you gotta do it in a way that like you know you're doing it. So like mm-hmm. she said, say it three times. Like you find yourself thinking of a tree, just say tree, tree, tree. And that way when you've really given it like the three word space of your okay. attention, then you can be like tree, 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 and then you can just Move on. <laughs> you can just, like, think of them like your mind is a river and there are all these little paper boats sorting flat. And those are all your thoughts. And you, like, you know, some of them floats by and catches your eye. And you're like, oh, tree, tree, tree. And then you're just, like, <laughs> then you're, like, back to back yeah. to the lake, you know? It's, like, because it's, it's inevitable. Yes. So, but you need to practice to, like, you need a way to do that. You need, you need a way to acknowledge that you are thinking. Because yes. you can't just... There's no such thing as, like, don't think. Right. There's only the practice of watching your breath and acknowledging thoughts when you notice you're having them. That's all it is. So it's, you have to remain, like, really, really, really in that tight circle of just the technique, not in the tooling. So if you're saying, I'm doing this because I'm going to be a better person, you're already outside. I see. You've already abandoned. has to be in You've abandoned the, the... the, the technique you're not you're not you're no longer in technique you're in causes and effects and outcomes and okay. attachments and so is the point to be to just sort of be receptive to what's <clears throat> what's floating down the river 
without judging it. Be like, oh, yeah, you're literally bad. practicing non-attachment. Non-attachment is what's called. Okay. Which is a which is not it's not negation, right? Because it's like you're not attached and you're also not resisting. You're not doing either. It's like you 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 can't. The point is consistency. The point is that these, even if we don't understand how these things work, they work. And that same is for, like, community building. You can't, nothing, not physical exercise, not eating right, not meditation and not not worship, like, is a matter of just doing it once and saying, there, I'm done, I'm enlightened, I'm it. That's right. Right, it's a life. It's a life. It's It's a a habit. It's a way. In fact, yes. In fact, (laughs) like, that's, like, the earliest term, like, the earliest Christians I was just reading in the, Mm -hmm. uh, the Jewish annotated New Testament, which is like the loveliest thing ever. It's like That's great. It's like, <laughs> let's read the New Testament, but let's read it as Jews. Yeah. That was the way the earliest Christians referred to themselves, or the earliest followers yeah. of Jesus, because they weren't. This was yeah. probably centuries before they were Christians. But you know, the the way, the way. like it's it's the path, right? And that's why yeah. it's so disconcerting, right? In a way, it's so like predictably insidious to be like the journey. Oh, right, the journey is the co- yeah. the journey is the co-opting under all this mar- on the, this oh. veneer of um, consumer choice Ooh. of the way, which is and whether Ooh. it's Christian or not or whatever, it, it mm-hmm. doesn't matter for this point. Mm-hmm. But it's like instead of a shared life lifestyle again, also co-opted, <laughs> yeah. but instead of the sort of shared set of very specific values and principles that we're separating what you should do from what you shouldn't do, right. And what you were obligated to do, mm-hmm. you get this sort of like smorgasbord, you know, you do you, we don't judge. Yeah. You know, you get this sort of vague. Yeah, there's nothing about that. You get that. the fake praying. Right. Or the, like, I can't decide, again, if it's like, if the fakeness is in what you say or if in, in the intention. But I definitely just had that epiphany. It's like, I don't need personal growth. I need the thing that comes after that. Or it's like, not like, which is not me saying I've done all the personal growth I can do. It's just me saying, I don't think about it like that anymore. I don't think about like changing my life from the place of if I, it's like, it's like the meditation thing. If it were, if it's like that, it's not like if I do something, my life is going to change. It's more like I'm here and I recognize the importance of having connection with and, uh, and service to others. So I want to manifest that, but I, and I swear that it has to be possible without the excuse and the expense of courses and teachers and yeah, journaling goals and it just, it can't, there has to be other options. Right. The the most important thing for a human to participate in can't be purchasable, right? It can't be a product or a service. That makes no sense. Uh